On this week's programme, the vision and legacy of writer and cartographer Tim Robinson and his archive at NUI Galway. Hello and welcome to Arts Tonight. Tim Robinson's unique contribution to Irish literature and landscape spanning over 40 years is now celebrated in a book, Connemara and Elsewhere, published by the Royal Irish Academy with support from Galway University Foundation. The book, edited by Professor Jane Conroy, includes contributions from photographer Nicholas Fev and writer John Elder and also features new essays by Tim Robinson himself. An associated exhibition interpreting landscape Tim Robinson and the West of Ireland is running at the Hardiman Library in Galway University. I recently visited Tim Robinson at his home in Connemara, but before heading out to Roundstone, I visited the archive in the Hardiman Library at NUIG and was shown around the exhibition in Inspired by his work. There was met, first of all, by Niall McSweeney, Head of Customer Focus and Research Services. Here we are in the Archives and Special Collections basement storage area. It is reflective of the investment by the university, indeed the HEA, in archives as a research resource. Barry Hoolan, you're archivist here at, at the Hardiman Library. And, uh, extraordinary to think that so much material is stored here, is safe here, and you, you know that it is safe, I guess, yes. once it comes in. Yes. In here, a humming in the background, that is the, the climate and environmental unit. It actually changes the air in here every 15 minutes, so we have four air changes per hour. The climate control unit here uh, maintains a constant level of, of temperature between 18 and 20 degrees centigrade and a relative humidity of between 40 and 60% relative humidity, keeping all the documents down here, be it paper, uh, photographs or otherwise, at a nice, stable environment. For Tim's archive, for something as, as multi-format as it is, and for something so richly important in heritage, this is the best home possibly for it, so it's wonderful to have it here. But in this room right now, we have a repository of, of material going back to the 15th century, right up to the present day, in every format you can imagine. But wonderful collections relating to the university history, the institutional history of Queen's College Galway, true to becoming in UI Galway, cultural, theatrical and English literature collections like Druid Theatre Company, the Lyric Theatre Belfast, Thomas Kilroy, or indeed the local Druid Theatre, wonderful collections, along with like of John McGarren, which brings a whole cross-section of cultural heritage. If you bring in... Um, some of the political collections like Brendan Duddy who was a mediator in the peace process in the north alongside the likes of Kevin Boyle who was a human rights academic again at, at an international level we're bringing that back here into one single repository here at UI Galway um, and every bay, every shelf you could pick a box, pick an item and it's, it's a treasure trove Do you ever come down just for a look? I, <laughs> yes, absolutely, it's hard not to you could just read these wonderful documents all day but we like to pass them over to the students and the academics for their study and teaching I must say I please just looking around here I think I'd love to get loose unpack the boxes yes. quick glimpses of, of the past and the future let's, let's go on and have a look at maybe yeah, some of Tim's work Barry, here actually looking at the Tim Robinson material and there are these wonderful place names, the cards where he made these elaborate notes and they seem to be a kind of almost like a foundation stone of, of his work and many boxes, many files here. 
there's over 100,000 items in the Robinson archive and over 120 boxes of material holding all those. What we're looking at right now is an old-fashioned item, but it's actually a card index. That would be common in any archive or library. Uh, there's over 20 drawers of uh, thousands of individual cards. And as Tim was documenting on his travels, um, he was writing down local history, parish histories, items of curiosity um, that he would be documenting. It's a mathematical feat, and a, as well as a geographic feat, this card index, because it is cross-referenced completely and the archivists uh, working on this collection are actually digitizing this and linking these records uh, into the wider context of, uh, of research for new, new studies which is wonderful. And they're actually quite beautiful to look at. Uh, you see all the, the coloured paper clips, uh, but then you take out a card and you get something like, you know, uh, Morris Parish and uh, the RSC Parish of Ranston, of Arizona, etc. And, and, and Tim's lovely hand. I mean, uh, every object you realise, the single object becomes of huge interest, you know, is, is a beautiful thing in itself. So you realise the cumulative effect of, of all of it. And Nessa Cronin, you've done quite a bit of work in getting uh, this archive to the point, this point in, in the university, and it must be hugely gratifying to see it here now. Absolutely. Um, I think part of the rationale for how the archive came to Galway initially was also that Tim had worked very closely with um, staff in the university here across many, many different departments and disciplines since the 1970s. And now Tim and Maraith from Folding Landscapes have gifted it back to the people of the West. So it's returned to a very, very... Um, appropriate home in many ways. And of course it's part of, uh, was it again, an important series of archives in NUI Galway. Uh, Eamon de Butler's wonderful archive, which I think was in part inspirational for, for the Robinson archive coming here. Absolutely, and I think in many ways um, the role of the archives both nationally and internationally have really changed in recent years, and I think this is part of, I think, academic scholarship but also universities realising that they have a role and responsibility in terms of public scholarship and public memory. Um, so we can see Tim work embedded in conversation with somebody like Eamon de Butler and while they were friends over the course of their lives their archives now are becoming friends down here in the basement of the Hardman Library as well which is very appropriate in many ways. Jane Conroy again you've been hugely been a huge part of, of, of this process of, of getting the Tim Robinson archive to NUI Galway and edited this wonderful book Connemara and elsewhere uh, you were pointing out that <laughs> this object here containing uh, the, the place cards the name is, is in itself a strong link back to the university. Yes, well, it's actually just one of those tangible objects that shows you how close the relationship was over the years because that actual case with all its little card indexes in its drawers, uh, that was given to Tim when he needed somewhere to put all his notes and Mary Redden, uh, an earlier librarian here in the university, presented him with that. So it's just one of those things that tells us, you know, that he's present and that the, this continuity about the friendship with Tim between Tim and the Rob. It's, yeah, and it's a lovely the object Robinson too. Yeah, and it's, yeah, yeah. There is that sense of yeah. of the old university from its Absolutely, life, there, yeah. yes. Well, we all cut our teeth on these, you know. <laughs> 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 yeah. Barry, I presume there are some of, of Tim Robinson's famous maps here as well. Yes, absolutely. The maps are works of art in themselves, and we have those in special map cabinets. So we might go on and see those now. So we're now looking at the maps um, and plans that came in as part of the archive and uh, many of the draft uh, maps and plans that Tim had and wrote on and in many 
in many ways corrected and recorrected himself are now present so I think there's about 489 sheets so it's quite the archive for cartographic historians and also for people that are interested in local history and place names as well to cross-reference later um, so you can really see the process of cartography and of map making that Tim underwent um, since he arrived in Ireland in 1972 and then later in the second cabinet we can just have a look here so they're almost like early drafts of the Early of, of drafts, the maps. yeah, and also um, copies of different maritime maps and charts, admiralty maps and charts as well, of coastline, and also old Ordnance Survey maps. As he so all the used. maps that he was using, that he was exactly. drawing on to make his own. Yeah, exactly, and yeah. then he was incorporating that into his mm. own map that, then that he would produce in mm. the 1980s and 1990s. Fantastic, then. so he kept all of this. He kept a all of this, record, absolutely. Isn't it? So what we have here then, which is fantastic, we have the original boxes as well of Tim's Connemara map from 1990. Um, and we have all of the original prints and off prints from that here, the positive and the negative sides. In years to come, when students come to look at it and they'll go, what is print technology? They'll act- actually get to see this. So the methods of the, the printing process are of mm. as equal interest as the maps they've yes, used. that has become uh, part of an archive too, of course. Yes. Yeah, in terms of print history yeah. and, and of publishing history in many ways. So we can have a look. Um, and interspliced here, you can see different elements that are incorporated into the archive so part of his other uh, work as well was involved in the um, Save Roundstown Bog campaign that went on for quite a number of years when there was a proposed airport oh, to, be to build the on airport, the bog that's right, yes. um, mm. and uh, that didn't take place so again there's elements here in terms of I suppose environmental activism mm-hmm. as part of the legacy as well and then you've all the original uh, notes and prints and various items included. Mm. You can see that uh, you know an aspect like this would obviously be of particular interest to geographers but when you take the totality of the archive I suppose it, it's really uh, of relevance to so many areas. I think there's a, a plan as well, or at least an aspiration, a hope mm-hmm. for the possibility of having an artist in residence mm-hmm. associated with the Tim Robinson archive. It would be a wonderful idea. Yeah, uh, recently we've been uh, given some funding uh, to work on the archive and part of that project proposal um, incorporates the idea of an artist in residence working in the archive. And part of it that uh, can also give the idea as well as to we understand the value of the archive now but we have no idea really what the value of the archive could be in 20 years so to have that extra salliacht or imagination that someone who's involved in creative practice can bring to scholarship I think is very exciting. Kieran it's a vast archive and I presume that you get very particular insights into Tim Robinson the man as as well through through the archive. I, what you'd have to say is that it's probably one of the most organised collections ever to come in. Again, everything was filed meticulously. It's very much a personal view of Connemara, the Iron Islands and the Burn, and it, it kind of ties in a lot with, with the material we have as well. Let's go upstairs and look at the, the exhibition. This is reflecting the totality of, of, of Tim's work and the books and the maps. <laughs> Here we are now back in our uh, ground floor. Jane, just looking at the comments in the visitor book, you see that that people have really taken it in and and, uh, obviously a lot of students stop and look. Absolutely, and I was here one day just shortly after it opened and I was looking at that panel over there and there was one woman standing in front of it and she turned and said to me, I could meditate on that all day. Let's actually go and have a look at that panel because it, it is, again, very eye-catching and, and I know the quotations from Tim are, are well worth a closer look. 
Yes. So what, what you have in that panel there is this very Japanese-looking image of the water lilies in the water with the drops of water on the pads and so on. And then beside that, the quotations from Tim Robinson. These were the quotations, actually, that were put beside that image in the in the book. So it's that emerges out of the book, in this a sense. In the yes. book Connemara and elsewhere. But throughout the exhibition, actually, we've just used the same principle of taking the images that were in that book, done by Nicolas Febvre, and then taking whatever struck us as being most appropriate to that particular image. And we took, and Tim allowed us to take freely, right and left, whatever we wanted. So we sort of pillaged all his writings and we inspired ourselves from all his writings and we used the images that Nicolas Febvre, the photographs that he had taken. So the exhibition sort of reflects the same process as the book itself, you know, in other words, just putting text and image together. But that one is the, is the one, one of the ones that everybody likes very much, I think, because, because of the, the patterns that emerge. And this one here as well, because, again, what That's you're looking the at there... That's speckled pony, the, 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 that... that, that Again, I was reflecting the landscape. Yeah. Yes, that's and, right. And those, I mean, I know that John Elder, who is a wonderful piece mm-hmm. in the book, mm-hmm. has talked about you know these, this concept of the frost spots of time, and, and it seems entirely appropriate in that photograph of the, the speckles on the ponies. Jane, when you, when you started out with the idea of, of an exhibition, did you have a clear notion of, of what you wanted to achieve? No, no not, not really. In fact, I think the idea of the exhibition I had originally was simply we had this book with the text from Tim Robinson and the photographs by Nicolas Febvre, all inspired by Tim Robinson's writing, I should say. You know, he actually really took on the sort of mantle of the photographer of Tim Robinson's spirit rather than really illustrations of his work. And then it just sort of grew. Nessa and the library, Kieran and Niall and Ashling, uh, all worked together. We brought the archives into it and that has strengthened it tremendously. And I think we also had help, I should mention, from an excellent graphic designer, a man called Mel Durkin. And this, it's what's very striking us as well, is almost a, a physical feeling from it. It's almost tactile. I mean, you, you have the sense that you could, you could touch this and expect to feel rock um, or, or feel wool. I mean, it's, it's, it's very, very strong. Absolutely, and I suppose one element that we wanted to foreground was the materiality of the West and also the materiality of what Tim actually encountered when he was out traipsing up and down hill and dale and over mountains and across streams and bohans and boreens and all sorts of things. So when people come, it actually jumps out at people and it kind of lures people into it. So for example, the panel that you're looking at there, Vincent, on Ilan Oran, um, the photograph that goes with the map of, of Aaron uh, that's attending with it is actually a very close inset of an Aran jumper um, and you're looking at the, the traces of the wool but also it could be actually the landscape of Aran as well if anyone has walked across it you know it's tricky as knitting an Aran jumper would be tricky on any day of the week as well so we wanted that kind of interplay between text and image artefact culture text books and also I suppose the archive of the past but also the books of the future as well I suppose in many ways there's three or four different elements to the exhibition itself. There's the process of the map making, there's the field notes, uh, the diaries, letters, uh, photographs attached to it. There's then the physical maps themselves, the final maps that we have exhibited here. And then there's the Connemara and Elsewhere book, then the photographs of Nicolas Febvre and that are really a contemporary response to 40 years of working in the West with Tim. A name that uh, very much caught my eye in here in the exhibition, uh, Nowhere Now Here, John Woods, Roundstone, April 2011, and my father, uh, who was a, a farmer, 
uh, was John Woods. And my nephew, who's a student of Irish doing an MA in Irish, is also John Woods. So there seems to be a lovely connection, personal connection for me into, uh, into this. And I think John Woods is a, a neighbour and friend of, of the Robinsons in, in Roundstone. Yes, and that, that's one of the extraordinary coincidences, apart from the coincidence of your own relationship. In, uh, there is, when actually Nicolas Feve took that photograph, put it as the final photograph in the book, because it's a man happily walking down a lane with his, looks like a shovel on his shoulder. He's completed his day's work and he's on his way home. And he put that in as sort of the last image in the book. And when the Robinsons saw it, they said, um, that's John Woods, and that's their close friend and neighbour. So it was just one of those moments that you couldn't have scripted. Jane, you know, having worked, I suppose, so closely with the Robinsons to, to achieve this, what does it mean to you now to know that the material is here, that this exhibition is on, that there's a sense of, of, of something not by any means complete... But of, of material, I suppose at the very least of, of material gathered together and with the beginning of a real honouring of it. Well, I think you can probably hear the enthusiasm in our voices as we speak about Tim Robinson's work and indeed about the Robinsons themselves as benefactors of the university. I think it's very important actually that this is going out and we're devising as many ways as possible to make sure that people know the wealth of this archive and this material. I can imagine in a hundred years' time it's going to be one of the most important documents that we will possess of this time. So it's not just a document of the 1980s, 1990s, you know, and, and, and this um, century. It's a document that stretches really far back into time. And that exhibition, Interpreting Landscape, Tim Robinson and the West of Ireland, continues at the Hardyman Library at NUI Galway until the end of January 2015. Now, following Arts Tonight's visit to NUIG, I travelled out to Roundstone, where I met Tim Robinson at his home near the harbour. In a later programme in the new year, a longer interview with Tim Robinson will be broadcast in its entirety. But this evening's programme focuses on Robinson's time spent in Ireland. I began by asking him if he remembered his arrival here all those years ago. Well, our first time in Ireland was, we'd just gone there out of a bit of curiosity raised by Robert Flaherty's film Man of Ireland, which I hadn't seen, but Marate had seen. And we found, we visited it in May, I suppose, when the wildflowers were at their most riotous and uh, the lambs were skipping in the fields and the waves were beautiful on the cliffs and so on. It was all paradise. And we stayed for ten days or so, maybe. And, uh, and then later on in the year we had some problems with our landlord and uh, decided to take this jump. We weren't not sure what I was doing with my paintings and so on. And I wanted to write and started writing. So we made a decision to, to leave everything in London and uh, move out and uh, maybe have a month or a couple of months in Arran while we looked around ourselves and decided what was to be done next. And uh, at the end of a uh, sort of 40-year detour that's been occasioned by that decision, <laughs> we're shortly going to be back on the track of our lives. <laughs> you arrived, I think, with a, a couple of suitcases, and and most likely when when you do leave, it'll be with little enough again because you, your your archive has has gone to NUI Galway. I presume there's a great sense of relief 
in a way around that the notion that everything is everything is safe now and and, yes, and stored for the future it is certainly the, the floods of uh, last uh, december and uh, january and february certainly warned us that this was not the place for uh, uh, what had become a valuable archive of all the notes and photographs and offsprints and books and so on that I gathered on Connemara and uh, Aaron in the course of 20 or 30 years of making maps of those areas. An enormous lot of stuff, which I'd finished with. And uh, so, yes, it has been a relief to make space on our shelves and in my head by physically transporting this stuff to the university in Galway, who already have made very good use of it and made an exhibition out of items from it and um, are getting it digitised and where generations of scholars will be able to delve in it. Tim, it strikes me as well that, uh, as well as the artwork on the walls, the windows here frame the landscapes that you know have become such a part of you and and you are now so associated with them, you know, these extraordinary landscapes of, of Connemara and here these the splendid view of the bay and the red... Uh, the red boat sitting in the water. I mean, the, yeah. this this beautiful still day now after yes. a very different morning. I know. I know. We have the classic view, actually, from Roundstone up the bay to the Twelve Bends, which are the heart of Connemara. And since this house is actually built out on the sea wall, where it juts out sort of behind the main quay, it's perched on the, on the sea itself. And uh, that is why the water does occasionally come up through the floor. We just have to be philosophical about that, as uh, many a person in many a cottage used to be philosophical (laughs) about the sea coming in, just an abnormally wet visitor, and goes again. What was was the house originally? It's gone through a lot of odd usages, I think. Um, Initially, I think the downstairs part of it was stables for horses and carts which were hired out by the landlord's agent and the big room upstairs contained uh, the food, the oats and all the rest of it which were sent down chutes into the mangers. Um, Then later on it became a knitting factory and um, it was probably initially built, most of it was initially built by the congested districts board in probably the 1890s. Then later on it became a knitting factory and uh, a carpet dyeing, a carpet factory. Well, it, it eventually became derelict and the, the factories had all gone bust and this was being sold off. When we moved into it, uh, we found that it was uh, one of the rooms down here. The ceiling had collapsed and under the mess of the ceiling were piles and piles of black plastic bags full of little bags of socks. And... Uh, Mairead thought, this is a wonderful idea. Every time we sell a map, now we'll give a free pair of socks with it. (laughs) However, we introduced these socks to a a Christmas dinner party that we attended with some friends. And everyone was delighted with them and immediately tried them on. And they all came unraveled instantly. So it was no wonder that the factory went bust. (laughs) Some of the maps, the Connemara map, I think, uh, you made here. Yes, that's right. In in the front part of the studio there, which is uh, so close to the sea that, you know, when there's a, a storm, the, the foam, the uh, spray rattles on the window there. 
mean, it's, it's almost it's drenched with light today, yeah, but it I is. imagine it, it is. drenched with water if, if <laughs> no. you had a window. No, it's, it can be quite uh, formidable. Whatever's going on on the sea is literally within a couple of feet of you there, horizontally. And we, uh, if the tide is very high, it's almost at foot, your own, the level of your own feet, just outside. It's, so it's a wonderful place to live, and it does mean we're living on the most intimate terms with the sea and with the moon and so on. We're very conscious of the full moon. And when there's no moon, because in the day or two after those events, it's likely to be a very high tide. And I have to keep my eye on the tide timetables to see how high it's going to be. And if it's going to be a very high spring tide, with the wind blowing from the southwest, then we have to take precautions and we lift everything that we can off the floor and expect a few inches of water to come in. It's only happened two or three times in our history here, but... Uh, we take special precautions. The move towards map making, was there an, a natural progression then even in terms of making marks on, on paper towards, towards making maps? Well, in retrospect, there was. But at the time, it didn't feel like that. Um, I w- we were settled in the Aran Islands and I was writing and the novel, experimental novel that I was writing had sort of fallen to bits into a number of short stories. Like the socks. <laughs> yes, like the socks. And... Um, and I was spending much more time exploring the islands and talking to the old fellows and beginning to collect place names because I'd realised how interesting they were and how they were being forgotten, even though I was only just beginning to learn Irish. It was a rather absurd way around to do it. Normally you need a, at least a degree and a knowledge of Old Irish and Middle Irish and several other sorts of Irish to collect the place names. But uh, I'd waded in and eventually got so much help from professionals in the field that, uh, on the whole, my collection stands. But then uh, the local postmistress, uh, she suggested that I make a map of the island since I spent all my time exploring it and I could obviously draw as well. Such an idea had never occurred to me before. I mean, the idea, the abstract idea of maps had been present in many of my works in many ways before, but I never committed myself to this sort of contract with reality that uh, undertaking a proper map means or does mean to me anyway so I started that very night and drew a sort of rough sketch of a map and based it on the available one inch maps which were a hundred years out of date and then moved on to make a more elaborate version based on the six inch ordnance survey maps which equally were a hundred years out of date but very accurate topographically and but very minimal in their information about place names because the place names were anglicized and most of them just weren't there at all so I fell into that job with enormous enthusiasm and uh, produced the map of Aaron within a, a year or so. And the first one was a very simple version. Uh, in two subsequent editions, I've been striving more and more for something that is adequate to or responsible to the beauty and uh, uniqueness of the Aran Islands. And uh, then I read something about the Burren in uh, Lloyd Prager's book, the, the Way That I Went, that inspired me to go to Ballyvorn and to see the spring flowers because I'd already become besotted with uh, botany mm. in the Aran Islands, which was, again, a totally new study to me. So I spent a couple of years making a map of the Burren, which was, uh, it was a huge task, of course, compared to the Aran Islands and uh, involved a lot of loneliness and slugging away in the rain over limestone clints and grikes and so on 
It was uh, psychologically and physically uh, quite wearing. But I'm very pleased with the map that I produced of that. And then it seemed obvious that uh, having done the Aran Islands and the Burren, the next place to do would be South Connemara. And that would cover all the land that we could see from our little home on the Aran Islands. It seemed a mad project to map everything you could see. But it had a sort of uh, hidden sense to it, hidden dynamism behind it. But uh, when I started on the South Connemara coast, which is endlessly complex, it's a, it's a fractal, it's a, a very high degree, it gradually became obvious that uh, I had to stick on the rest of Connemara as well, so I, it took years. I presume you didn't think about that at all? I presume you didn't think this may take me five years, ten years? Well, I remember doing an estimate diving? that it would take uh, two years, and of course it took about ten years. I think it took eight years altogether. Mm. And, and even the drawing of it took 18 months. Um, but the drawing was crucial, and the fact that I was drawing it rather than getting a draftsman to draw it. Because uh, nowadays, of course, maps just aren't done like that. There's uh, a band of specialists would be engaged in the satellite mapping or aerial photography or whatever it was, and translating that computerized computer programs, translating that into shapes on paper. And then the collection of place names would be going on quite separately. The person who walked the land never saw the paper, and the person who handled the paper had never walked the land. And apart from the fact that that leads to endless little misunderstandings of which of two dots is supposed to be the little church that's marked there, (laughs) and so on, or brutal mistakes like uh, geological features taken for roads, and so on. Because nobody has got on the bicycle and gone and looked at the thing. So this was a sort of alienation of hand from eye, as it were, uh, or foot from eye. So I was intent on overcoming that, and by and large that meant that I couldn't put anything on the map that I hadn't actually seen. By and large I stuck to that. You mentioned the the fractal coasts of, yeah. of Connemara, yeah. South Connemara in particular. Explain that concept of, of fractals and, and, and how how it impacts on on land and space and how we perceive it. Yes, fractals were a mathematical invention of the 1960s. An American mathematician, Benoit Mandelbrot, published an article called How Long is the Coast of Britain? Which seems a good enough question. It sounds as if it should have an answer. And certainly if you take a map of Britain, a good big map of Britain, and measure carefully around the coast, you'll get an answer for how long the coast is. But then you do notice that you've had to jump across a number of inlets and skip a number of little peninsulas that are too small to be mapped. So you get a bigger scale map and map those as well, and suddenly the answer is much bigger. And then if you get a really detailed map of each corner, each little uh, uh, village or stretch of the coast, you get a bigger answer still. And then if you take a measuring rod and start going around the coast itself, you get a much, much bigger answer, and so on down to the level where you're no longer dealing with geography but with atomic physics. You can stop the process there. But otherwise, there's no rational place to stop that process. You might imagine that you've got a series of answers from the first very, very approximate one to more accurate ones, and that these answers are sort of homing in on the truth. That is not so. Those answers just go on getting bigger and bigger and bigger and bigger to infinity, or going off in that direction. So... Any, And this is related to the fact that um, complex shapes, complex natural shapes in particular, like a coastline or like the outline of a cloud, are shapes 
which have subsidiary shapes attached to them, which have smaller ones attached to them, and so on, down almost to the infinitely small. So the idea of how many dimensions these things has, these things have, isn't uh, so simple. They're not exactly single-dimensional lines, but on the other hand, they don't fill in an area, so they're not two-dimensional either. They're in between. Benoit Mandelbrot managed to give a sense to the idea of something having one and a half dimensions, or three point six five seven dimensions. <laughs> you've you've talked about. Um in a sense, almost wanting to live a life of three halves. Mm. And, and, and if you, you take the three elements of uh, writing, uh, the mapping, and your visual art, here yes. are another three halves. Yeah. For you, are those three elements very closely linked? Uh, yes, uh, and I've always moved from one to the other, I suppose, and they have cross-fertilised each other. Mm. I think and I hope that uh, I'm going to be given uh, writing to do by inspiration over the next over the coming years. Certainly I'm not going to write more about Connemara or Aaron or the Baron. I'm probably not going to write more about space and place and all the things that people have begun to remark in my paintings. But mapping any landscape, mapping fr- fractal or otherwise, and you know, putting those marks, the black and the white spaces on on mapping on on, on the shapes that you make on maps. And how do you show, or how do you attempt to show what's there and the space that that's that's left that we we must, in a sense, almost imagine for ourselves? Uh, yeah. So all my maps have been black lines, black dots on a white expanse, I, I, and I think I can. Uh, justify that by saying that uh, the white represents the sort of irreparably and forever unknown as the idea of fractals shows you'll never get to the bottom of reality anyway you never come to the end of description so you either lie about that and colour in an area all with one colour and that colour pretends to say something about the whole of that area whereas that's impossible whatever um, characteristic of the area that a colour is like height above sea level or whatever it is that might be represented by a colour is actually infinitely variable and infinitely complexly variable within any area. I I feel like to myself saying let's not have any nonsense about colouring in this with a dark green because it's lowland and this grey because it's highland or a different geology or whatever it is. Everything is much more complex than that. And so really all the white on my maps, which is most of the maps, is a sign of my uh, irreversible, irreparable ignorance of whatever the topic is. When we think of uh, the Ordnance Survey of Ireland and, and those, those maps that have been, this was the basis of so much of, of naming and an understanding of landscape in this country, we also often think, we think of Brian Friel and his great play translations, mm. which I know you, you greatly admire. Um, what do you feel now about those maps and that process that, I suppose, gave us so much on the one hand and in another way seemed to take away a great deal. Do you mean the Ordnance Survey maps? Mm. Yes, the, the Ordnance Survey maps are Ordnance Survey maps of, say, 1839 when most of this area was covered for the first time. And then in 1898, I think, the second Ordnance Survey. The miracles of, of accuracy, now considering that they were done without modern instrumentation, and they were done by uh, an army of 
men spanning out across the countryside and stretching chains and taking sightings with their instruments and so on, or waiting for weeks on the top of one of these mountains up here, Bean and Taidur, so-called the, the cliff of the soldier, because one of the sappers fell off and they sacrificed one or two in, in this process, uh, waiting for a signal to come through from a mountain in Kerry. This sort of enormous um, undertaking and pursued down to minute details of, of topography. I'm often struck by the fact when I'm out in uh, Randstone Bog where there's sort of 100, 150 lakes of very, very elaborate, um, spiky, unusual shapes because it's very low-lying land. The um, Ordnance Survey maps of those lakes are spot-on accurate, every little wrinkle of the coastline. But on the other hand, the place names are uh, anglicised on those, and um, an enormous lot is lost in that sort of process. I mean, for instance, on the Arden Islands map, the Ordnance Survey has a, a little place name on the southeast corner of the bigger of the three Arden Islands, which looks like Ilon Anor, which looks as if it might mean the island of the gold or something like that. But uh, since it's not an island, you realise at first that this word isn't Ilon, it's Glon. It's a glen, it's a little valley there. And it's actually Nanyor of the drops, of the tears. So it's the glen of the tears, or in the biblical phrase, the Vale of tears is exactly that. Why? Because before the famine, uh, emigration started from the Aran Islands, and people would emigrate to America by getting a lift in a fishing boat across to the coast of Connemara. They'd walk 20 or 30 miles along the coast of Connemara into Galway. They'd wait for one of the sailing boats to uh, pick them up and to take them. And eventually, when they, they got underway and the sailing boats would sail out of Galway Bay between the Aran Islands, they would find that the wind was in their faces coming off the Atlantic, and they would have to heave to or hold to, whatever the phrase is. They would have to wait until the, the winds were favourable. And the, the place they waited was just in the lee of the island, opposite Ilan and Yor. So people could come down to that little glen of tears and uh, see their loved ones on the boats and wave to them and so on, but be unable to speak to them. So that was commemorated, I'm sure, in the name Glen of, Glen of Tears. No doubt, there were tears. So that's a, that's a treasure of a story, which uh, by ignorance and ill-famed, ill-conceived uh, policies was perpetuated. You had, I suppose, in many ways, the privilege of, of hearing some of those stories and the, the truth of, of the stories emerging again. You know, I know people, some people are almost waiting for you to come and and talk to them. You, 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 yes. uh, you had a column, I think, in the, the Conduct Caribbean, yes. uh, which made many people aware of what you were doing and, and made them alert to the fact that you might, you might call. Yes, I was... Uh amazed to discover the penetration of the Connaught Tribune into the remotest corners of Connemara. Sometimes I'd call in at a remote cottage and I'd say, uh, I'm, I'm the man from Randstone who's doing the maps. And it was always much better to do that than to arrive in any official form. And the woman of the house would say, oh, himself has got a stone that he wants to show you. And the name of that hill up there is, and she'd start on this straight away. They all had their local knowledge lined up on the tips of their tongues, 
And uh, so this uh, accelerated the process enormously, and it was enormously productive. You delved in, as you said, uh, to Irish, to the Irish language, learned it, and have come to love it, I know. Mm. And with Liam McAnumara, you've been working on a translation of Crane a Killer, yeah. great novel, which will be published, I think, the year after next, um, right. with the Alan Titley's translation coming out next year. A remarkable work. Tell me, first of all, about how you came to know Liam McAnumara and, and that process of working together on, I suppose, on, on dual language editions of, of, of the yes. books. Yes, yes. Uh, I think I, th- I first met Liam many, many years ago when uh, I was uh, visiting the place law department in UCD. He was working there at that time. And we became friends, and I can't remember the, the stages of all that now, but we've been very close for a long time. And um, often enough, when I've had a problem with uh, translating a, a bit of Irish, I phoned up, phoned up Liam. And because uh, my Irish is extremely limited. I mean, uh, while I was working around South Connemara and absolutely dependent on being able to pick up stories from people who who uh, were much more fluent in Irish than they were in English, or much more forthcoming in Irish than they were in English. And I was also dependent on being able to ask, when is high tide today? Or are there any signs among the rocks, any particular points among these rocks that I should look out for to tell me when the high tide is, when the tide is flowing in and so on? so that I could walk out across the sands to various tidal islands and so on. It was absolutely essential. I wouldn't have got anywhere without the Irish language. But at the moment, at the uh, same time, academically, my Irish is far from respectable, and uh, it's also got a bit rusty of recent years. So although I love the language and enjoy reading it and read fairly fluently and use it, or was using it every day in doing my maps and writing my books. I wouldn't, I don't like to talk it in public nowadays out of respect for the language itself. And the business of, of translating a work like Crane a Killer, for instance, so mm. how, how did you begin with that? I mean, it, is it a matter of uh, starting on, on page one and working through, or do you again delve in and, and begin to unravel uh, and, and work and find a form of English that mm. in some way matches the Irish? Yeah, I think it started off with an article by Michael Cronin, the expert on theory of translations in the Irish Times. And it was, among other things, lamenting the fact that there wasn't an English translation on the market of Crane Achillo, which is supposed to be the great Irish modernist novel, but which is a locked box to most critics, most commentators. So it's much more commented on than read. So quite quixotically then, Liam and I decided that we would undertake a translation. And at that stage it was for our own interest and so on. And we more or less finished the translation by the time we were looking for a publication, for a publisher for it. We hadn't thought that far ahead. So really we started at the beginning and and plunged in. And uh, Liam would produce a straightforward first draft of a translation. That was the heavy lifting bit, really. And then I'd work through that and we'd pass every phrase in it to and fro between us and we'd consult every known dictionary and unknown dictionary of, of uh, Connaught Irish and Connemara Irish and list of Fockel, Asros, Muck and other tomes like that and uh, eventually agree uh, or agree to disagree and take turns in being right um, as to how to treat each bit of it. And then I suppose... 
endless revisions once we got more of a grasp of the structure of the, and uh, the tone and the uh, velocity of the novel itself as a whole. We would amend our individual decisions and so on. So many years of uh, second thoughts, third thoughts, fourth thoughts and so on. So it would be very interesting to see how it's received. Did you enjoy that work? Oh yes, yes, that was absolutely fascinating and of course we were in no hurry. We were working at it in between other things and so on. And then at one stage I was in Cambridge and Liam and his wife Barbara came across and together with Maraid we had a, a brainstorming session and solved a whole lot of outstanding puzzles about the work and our choice of words and so on. And that was very good, perhaps, to do that away from Connemara. Forty years is a long time, um, and you, you, you know you've talked about the uh, this ABC of Earth wonders are in the burn of Con- and Connemara. But mm. you know, I wonder, in some ways, did did this place, did these landscapes become a kind a home? They have, of course, become a home, but at the same time, uh, I haven't put down roots. And in fact, I've written against the concept of roots, which I described as being unacceptably vegetable. Roots. Oh, and they hold you down. They hold you down, they hold you in place, they limit your development. You're, you're, you're probably sucking up ancient poisons through them and so on. There's many reasons for being very distrustful of roots. And uh, so instead of that, um, I'm beginning to write about the centre of gravity as uh, an imaginary organ of the body. Um, but anyway, it's from a certain point of view, now that this work is done... And as I say, it's up to anybody else to carry on and do it again, do it better, or correct it, or whatever, or start from scratch and so on. And undoubtedly other people will be mapping, remapping and rewriting these areas forever, one hopes. So there's nothing, nothing final, no, uh, no final diktat in my writings on them at all. It's all tentative. How would you like to see the archive, your archive being used in, in NUI Galway? Uh, well, I, I suppose the archive has a certain interest in itself as a record of a particular creative experience and it's backed up by an archive of all my manuscripts and reviews and all that sort of stuff. All that's gone off as well. So people could use it for for studying the making of those works if anyone's minded to do so. But at the same time, there in, in rough is the making of um, another study of Connemara, of Aaron or of Burren, through the stories and the place names and through the topography that I've gathered together. Tim, we've, we've come into this, if you like, the, the front room of the studio here where you've done so much work and, and looking out at the bay. You know, thinking of, of this place and for yourself, Maraid's home to you for the last 30 years... You're not saying goodbye to, to Connemara, but you're you're moving away in a sense that your work is done and yes. looking to two other places as well and other sources, I suppose, of inspiration for for the the writing. I, I hope very much there will be other places of inspiration. I'll be <laughs> excited to see that happen. Yes, the, the latest book to come out is Connemara and Elsewhere. And this is really a photographic essay by uh, a young French photographer, Nicolas Feve of my writings on Connemara. And uh, he's taken bits of these my texts and faced them or combined them in all sorts of cunning ways with photographs. 
most of which are fairly generic. They don't really represent particular places in Connemara, but uh, particular situations like little boggy corners or threads of barbed wire across a gap with uh, sheep's wool caught in them and so on. They have their own subdued poetry to them. He's also interested in the philosophy of and uh, history of photography, so there's a good deal of sort of textual self-reference and so on going on there, and lots of uh, linguistic games going on between the image and the text. We've called this book Connemara and elsewhere because at the end I've put in an appendix of relatively recent bits of writing which are not about Connemara, and which are perhaps a pointer to the direction that I'd like my writing to go in if I'm if I'm given a a third half of life, as it were. Would you read a little, maybe, from from one of those three? Uh, I think I'll read you one called Where Are the Nows of Yesteryear, which, as the title, is just one S short of Where Are the Snows of Yesteryear. About three years ago, I spent some time in Cambridge, and while I was there, I used to go to meetings of the Moral Sciences Club Society, which uh, I would never have dared to do when I was a student there. That was where Wittgenstein and Russell and so on, giants like that, fought their battles. But I find the the work that was going on there, the discussions that were going on there, very approachable and and very valuable. There was quite a lot of talk about the nature of time, and led usually by the Professor Emeritus Hugh Miller and his theory of time. And I think I came out of those... uh, sessions, perhaps not much the wiser about the nature of time, but with his title, Where are the Nows of Yesteryear? Because his theory revolved around an analysis of the concept of the now, the present instance. So that title hung around in my head for a long time until I fitted it to memories of my own life, which is, I'll read to you now. I've become very much more interested in strict form in writing as well than I was when I was doing the uh, relatively baggy Connemara books. So this particular piece is written in about seven or eight longish paragraphs, each of which begins and ends with the word now. So I'll just read a couple from the beginning and a couple from the end of this piece. Where are the nows of yesteryear? Now that so much time has passed, I must admit the possibility that my childhood memories of my grandmother's musical box have been polished into luminosity by nostalgia. It stood on a low occasional table in her little antique shop, overshadowed by towering wardrobes and crowding tall boys, but glinting as with an internal energy. Its simple, almost naive mechanism fascinated me. A spring-powered contraption like the works of an old clock drove the rotation of a brass cylinder, on which were hundreds of prickles that twanged the teeth of a graduated steel comb, producing hesitant and plaintive melodies. This tender machinery was mounted on a polished wooden base and covered by a lid with glass sides, through which I could admire the tense coiled spring and dark laborious cogs, watch the hypnotically slow turning of the gleaming cylinder and sense the tiny flexure and straining of a tooth of the dull grey comb as each note was prepared, seemed momentarily to resist being detached from silence, and then yielded with a slight reluctance, like a ripe blackberry plucked from a briar. Years later, when I read H.G. Wells' description of the time machine, a glittering apparatus of bronze and crystal, I was carried back to the fusty old shop in the quiet North Wales town of Mould. 
Had I realised then that the musical box itself was a time machine, I would have asked my grandmother for it. She would have kept it for me, and it would be on my desk now. Now, and to end, let me open what always felt to me to be the secret heart of my grandparents' house. At floor level, in the corner of the sitting room, was a cupboard full of games. that must have been old-fashioned even in those days of my childhood. Sometimes I would delve into it before breakfast, when there was a faint acrid tang of dead ashes in the room, as yet unvisited by the day's routines. There were tiddlywinks and marbles, packs of cards for playing happy families, and shallow boxes that opened up into trays scattered with cardboard fish one could angle for with a little magnet on a string. On the floor of the cupboard, or between the leaves of big illustrated books, I used occasionally to find more valuable fish too, escaped perhaps from a long-lost pouch. They were delicately cut out from wafers of a pearly, translucent material, and must have been tokens in some antique parlour game, as I realised much later when I read in a Jane Austen novel of a girl who, after an evening visit, could talk of nothing but the fish she had won and the fish she had lost. Most precious of all was a set of ivory spillikins in a narrow little box, also of ivory, with a delicately fretted lid. Each spillikin had a slender stem some four inches long, and a head representing a Chinese sage, a sickle moon, a long-tailed bird or some odd animal. Piled on a tabletop, they formed a tangle, from which, with the aid of a little hook, one tried to extricate one spillikin at a time, without causing the least trembling among the rest. An operation as delicate as that of capturing an elusive memory without awakening others interlinked with it that one would rather leave undisturbed. Where is this test of the subtle and steady hand now? At the bottom of a box of crumpled letters, photographs and ephemera, perhaps, forgotten in the attic of some house I have long quitted. And the moment of first finding them in my grandparents' cupboard? All events have an equal claim to a tenseless reality, says Professor Meller. All have their address in space-time. Among them must be the contents of everyone's nows, whether past, present or future, remembered or forgotten, observed or unobserved. While it is not quite pleasing to hear that countless redundant trivialities are of the stuff of the universe, I like to think that the particular nows that have been picked out by our passionate attention to them are stacked away separately, as it were, in vaults, like paintings bought by a millionaire on the advice of experts. If the connoisseurship of memory is the human role in this indiscriminately memorious world, then among those treasures is certainly my grandmother's quietly challenging utterance on first emptying out the box of spillikins for me. Now. That was Tim Robinson reading an excerpt from one of his essays in the book Connemara and Elsewhere, edited by Professor Jane Conroy and published by the Royal Irish Academy with support from Galway University Foundation. A more extensive interview with Tim Robinson will be broadcast in full early in 2015. Next week's Arts Tonight looks at the legacy of the Kentucky-born singer-songwriter Jean Ritchie with the release of Dear Jean, a CD tribute featuring performances from an array of Ritchie's fans and admirers. Join us then. Until then, good night. <laughs> <laughs>